This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. My name is Nicholas Meyer, director of Star Trek 2 and 6, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I'm Ken Tripp. I'm Haley Stoddart. And I am Zach Moore. And this week, we're talking Day of the Dove, a third season episode with the Klingons. And this is my favorite episode, I think, of the original series with the Klingons. Uh, They're only in seven. People act like they're around all the time, but they're... They're really not. And, uh, you know, I'm hashtag Team Kang as far as original (laughs) series Klingons go. Uh, We'll get into that. And, you know, this is a third season episode, which is a season that doesn't get talked about as much as the other two. So we have three seasons of TOS. Looking forward to getting to our discussion on this one today. Yeah, I'm glad. I am uh, too. Yeah, I I think this was, uh, it's it's kind of one of those unique, not very talked about episodes. Um, Too often, anyway, we hadn't. Right? What do we got? Two hundred and ninety-two episodes, <laughs> and, and we have really haven't bridged this one. So I think this should be a, a good uh, a good topic for the day. It'll be definitely interesting to discuss. I have some ideas. Good. Well, let's let's kind of give you a, a quick outline on this. So it starts off with a, a, a beam in, right? The landing party armed with phasers, um, looking for. Um, bodies or to to help support a colony that supposedly has been attacked obviously we learned quickly there's no um there's no colony at all and everybody's really upset and they feel feel that people have been slaughtered and what we learn is um that uh, the klingons who are in the area too their their ship was um somehow damaged uh and they respond to the colony as well and um the Federation thinks the Klingons destroyed their colony. The Klingons think the Federation attacked their ship. And it turns out there's an alien in the background of all of this that can do some incredible things. It can, um, it can, it can damage ships. It can um, somehow send distress calls. It can uh, regenerate the dead. It can control the ship. It can control minds. It, it's a very powerful alien, uh, and it feeds off of off of anger and violence and essentially what it does is it pits 37 klingons against 37 federation types on the enterprise uh at warp 9 uh heading towards the edge or outside the galaxy and it just allows these these 37 some odd folks to continually fight die rearm fight and in the meantime just just feeds this incredible passion and anger and animalistic traits into both the Klingons and the Federation. I say the Federation so we can include Spock in that. Um, everybody's impacted to some degree, some more than others. And it's, um, it's, it's an incredible story on, and on its face that you have this, this creature that can do all these things, feeds off it. Um, and then the way they defeat it, I think, is, is fairly clever by just essentially you know, making peace. Um, but they have to fight um, quite a bit uh, their own prejudices, their own animalistic instincts, uh, to kind of logically get to a point where you know they they just they they just make it all end. And of course, if they don't make it all end, then the dilithium crystals burn out, and they're adrift um, in another galaxy or outside our galaxy forever, fighting forever and ever. So it um, 
you know, I, I realize I gave it uh, not a lot of justice in my description, but I think as we kind of talk through the different details of this, and we talk about the characters, we talk about the prejudice and dehumanizing, we talk about um, the thought processes and rules of wars. Each thing that uh, we're gonna we're gonna lead the discussion on, I think it'll it'll get more interesting. But from a from a plot perspective, Haley, what were your what were your thoughts on the whole plot and the idea of Day of the Dove? It's a really interesting concept and. I feel like it's something I've seen somewhere else before where people are trapped in something and caught up in just this fear and anger that just continues and continues and continues. I couldn't tell you where, but it's a really kind of a scary notion to consider and think about where you're just constantly at each other just because some outside force needs that. And this this alien non-corporeal being thing kind of reminds me of Armus because he was all that anger and all these negative awful feelings in in a form of some sort and and fed off of that as well um so it's it's interesting and I I can understand the fear and it's I think one thing that really gets me is Kirk is almost kind of the last one to really be taken over by all of this. Like he really fights it. And you would think that he would be one of the first ones that would really give into the anger and the fear that this being kind of causes in everybody else. But he's kind of the last holdout. And I really like that notion that Kirk is kind of, is that last one to say, no, there's something going on. I'm not going to give into it. Like when Scotty comes on and storms on to the bridge and is all mad and everything like that, it's really kind of interesting that Kirk is all the one like, you guys, knock it off. And Bones falls to it. You'd think he maybe would be a holdout for it. So it's it's really quite an interesting concept. And I like that they use the Klingons because in this episode they talk about, Mara talks about how she's, you know, they're hunters and Klingons are hunters and they're always warriors. And so using the Klingons in this aspect where it's just this constant pitting, fighting against each other is really well done. Yeah, the the pinwheel alien is what I always described it as. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it does have a lot of uh, a lot of abilities, as you say, Ken. I mean, I, I can buy the fact that it uh, controls like and feeds off emotions I'm like, OK, that's fine. Uh, faking distress calls, and I don't know, causing destruction on alien ships. <laughs> I mean, this has has a wide range of abilities, right? You know, we jump right into the action. You know, that usually a normal TOS episode would start out with like, oh, we have a distress call, and now we're going to be on the planet, and now everything's been destroyed, like Arena or something like that. It is similar in that setup, but the, the format's different because we jump into the action in the middle of it. Yeah, and then we find out that, uh, yeah, the Klingons and obviously the Federation have this animosity towards each other, and they've been at this war stalemate for three years, as they say in the episode. So good on you for continuity show, uh, referencing Aaron and Mercy. But, you know, they're already prone to hating each other, so that makes it easy to turn these two sides against each other. All they need is a little nudge to kind of delve into this this full-on hatred. And and I liked, I liked how Kirk was the level-headed one. I mean, that's what he's supposed to be, right? He's supposed to be the balance of, you know, Spock's over here and McCoy's over here, and he's in the middle. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, be, being the being the leader, he has a greater responsibility than just giving to his emotions all the time. Like, he's going to choose not to kill today, like in uh, The Taste of Armageddon. So, uh, I, yeah, I, 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 like I said, I, this, is, this is probably my favorite Cleon episode. And uh, they're not the main antagonist, I guess, because they're, 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 everyone is pawns in this episode, but right. That's the point, right? We're all pawns to greater powers and we have to, you know, think for ourselves, you know, and, and even like Kirk says at the end, like, just don't be just following orders. Right. Uh, so even though you, you feel some hate or you feel told about somebody else, uh, this other side, you know, just try to step back and look at the bigger picture. And that's what the message of this episode really is. So, uh, that's, it's, it's a really great message as, as most great Star Trek episodes, have and I think it's I think it is overlooked because people always talk about you know they talk about Aaron and Mercy as the Klingon episode because they're introduced and you talk about Trouble Tribbles because the Klingons are in it but I don't really consider that a Klingon episode and then the other ones are just kind of like stock bad guys like they could be anyone you know like in Friday's Child or uh, Atlanta of Troyes right uh, but this one it, it actually really does play into the conflict between the Federation and the Klingons uh, to great effect with uh, the alien antagonist they choose. So I just think it was really, really well put together. Yeah, they did a good job. 
All right, Haley, why don't you take us through um, the characters and um, you know your, your kind of thoughts on the way they were portrayed. Yeah, so um, what was really interesting when you talked about doing this episode, um, I love that uh, Kang, I really enjoy Kang. I remember him from Deep Space Nine. It's... <laughs> um, it's really neat that they got the same actor to play Kang. So he got to play the same character in TOS, Deep Space Nine, and in Voyager. And I thought that was really, really, really cool. People know Kang more from those, I think. Yeah. Than, than, <laughs> than this, right? That, that that adds like a mythology credence to this episode that he kept coming back later on in other shows. Yeah. Mike, Michael Ansara was the actor. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, he's, 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 he's always kind of plays the heavy all the time, right? Hashtag Team Kang. Team Kang, yep. Yeah. But Sorry, Haley. No, you're totally fine. Um, I mean, really, the only ones that we kind of know more their names of it's Kang and his wife Mara. Um, these characters are really, I think, compelling. Um, and even though we don't see them before, they have really great background story to them, and you feel like okay, you could see where they've come from. Um, so. It really, really well done. And I appreciated King. I, I really like him. He's fantastic Klingon character. You can tell that he's also maybe kind of struggling and fighting with whatever's going on. I mean, he's giving into his nature more than anything. But, you know, with, with the torture we can talk about, you know, he interrogates... There's the interrogation and this back and forth between Kang and Kirk, which I think is incredibly well done. They both want their crews to be the victor and they want to win, but they also both kind of show this lack of desire to see the other harmed after, you know, they've been at peace for three years with the Federation. And why would we want to give this up? But at the same time, we need to fight and we need to save ourselves and Klingons are going to take over the ship and they're going to torture and kill everybody and Kirk's going to die last and Kang's going to put his head on the wall. And then you have Mara and it's interesting to see the scientist Klingon (laughs) in Mara and I felt that she was really interesting as well. You know, she sees the reason first. She's there with, with Kirk and Spock on the bridge after Kirk rescues her from Chekhov. That was an awful scene. But he starts talking to her like, this This isn't us. This isn't how we're supposed to be. And we need to talk, I need to talk to Kang and I need to reason with him and, and get to his higher nature, not just his base instincts. And she's still struggling with it. But at the same time, she really sees reason. And I I like that she takes Kirk to Kang and says, you need to listen to him. And we need to stop fighting. And I I liked her character. So um, and I think you mentioned this in the notes, no devil, but understands his ways. And I wasn't quite sure what you meant by that. But I think you were referencing that line where Kang says, we know your devil. We don't. Yeah, we don't Kling- know of him, but we we know enough. The Klingons, yeah, the Klingons don't have a devil, yeah. but we understand, you know, his. his oh, but place. in TNG they you know, do. That I know <laughs> that I know that. So Feklar, Feklar is the guardian of hell. <laughs> yeah, Rethor, right, where the dishonored go when they die. They didn't say that was the devil, although then that person turns into the the, the Earth Devil right after that. So it does seem to be a contradiction, but yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really liked uh, Kang, obviously, as I said many times here. Uh, he, Michael Ansar has the coolest voice. He does. Right? Yeah. And he actually went on to voice uh, Mr. Freeze in Batman the Animated Series and the DC Animated Universe and uh, uh, directed video movies, episodes, and video games for a few years. And he comes on, he's immediately a strong presence. I mean, he just punches Kirk, <laughs> you know, right when he shows up. He's not messing around. And, you know, he's he's really angry because he thinks the Federation has violated the treaty and Kirk and all our guys are really angry because they think the Klingons have. So like most conflicts, this stems from a big misunderstanding. Uh, it's been a directed misunderstanding. They've been intentionally misled. Uh, but that's feeding everyone's actions here. And, and yeah, I think it's interesting that Kang's wife, Mara, is is on his crew. She's a science officer. You know, all this, all these Star Trek shows and all these captains and all this drama about you can't have families and wives and relationships and the Klingons, they got their families on, with them on the ships. What's the problem? Right. They got it figured out over there. So anyway, I thought that was a nice bit of look. They do things differently over on that side. And uh, this is the first Klingon woman we see, you know, having her kind of be the more level headed one 
being the science officer makes a lot of sense. I mean, even she questions, she doesn't immediately buy what Kirk is selling, right? It takes like two or three tries, and then she finally sees what's going on, which is good. And uh, yeah, I mean, let's, let's talk about that scene with her and Chekhov. That, that was really one of the most uncomfortable scenes in Star Trek. It's, it's pretty much, you know, it's right up there with uh, Enemy Within with, you know, evil Kirk and Janice Ryan. It's like basically an attempted rape almost, which they, they come and they break up. And that's, that was very uncomfortable uh scene but it just it shows you how you know bad and out of character things are for you know a guy like Chekhov who would never do something like that right that's right i think that uh you know the the animalistic behavior which they keep referencing just takes over and it's just a you know it's it, it's one of those things where it isn't um it isn't about passion it's about hurting the other you know degrading demoralizing uh all of that and um you know unfortunately and and we'll get that we'll get to to more I think on that in, in a little bit when we talk about what the alien did and what it what it pulled from these characters. But yeah, it was a a very uncomfortable scene. Uh, you don't want to see somebody you like acting that way, which I think is what makes it uncomfortable. So it was an effective scene, and um, you know, like, and like they, they they went there, you know, they went there. Yeah. Expect from a '60s TV show, right? Yeah, they went there, and then you know, um, it kind of helps you understand why Mara doesn't immediately trust them, right? I mean, she tries to thwart uh, two or three times before she, she comes around and understands that, oh, they're serious about trying to, to remedy and make, make peace because of what she just went through. I mean, it's, you know, a part of her uniform is torn and um, it's there, you know, for the rest of the episode. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, it's, you know, it's a symbol that's going to make things tougher, especially when they face Kang to talk to him about a truce. I mean, he sees that his his wife was attacked. So I thought that was actually a, a very clever, um, although uncomfortable, piece of the plot that made things a lot more trickier to get a um, a truce amongst both sides. Yeah, definitely. It's it's it is uncomfortable to watch based off what you guys have said. But again, it definitely does help. And it's interesting to watch her go through, especially on the bridge, that very last little bit when after Kirk, she tries to say something. And I love that it's he just puts his arm up. <laughs> like somehow that like mutes her from like calling out to King. I, anyway, <laughs> um, that doesn't work, but sure. Uh, but... You know, Kirk turns to her after they've decided what they're going to do. And, and he talks about, you know, on site beaming, you know, beaming from the transporter room back down to engineering. He turns to her and he looks at her and you almost sense that she is afraid that Kirk's going to do the same thing that Chekhov did. And and that he isn't going to say that, you know, he's going to put trust and faith in her to help them. You can see it on her face, even though she doesn't say anything. And Kirk doesn't really say anything. But you can see that back and forth, like, should I trust Kirk? And, and is he going to harm me? And, you know, Kirk's got this look like, I am i don't know if I can trust her, but I'm going to try. And I really enjoy that nonverbal communication between the two of them at that point. And then, you know, the next thing we know is they're on the transporter pad and they're beaming into engineering to talk to King. And it's really really incredible i really like just that little moment on the bridge yeah and just overall for the klingons i think there's a lot of kind of mythology that that gets established here that you don't think about but this is the first time we see them fighting with swords i mean they even mentioned that they're that they're trained in hand-to-hand combat which is obviously becomes a huge thing in all the next gen era and beyond you know with the batless and things like that and uh, it, it did remind me, of course, of, of Star Trek Three when it's like, no tricks, Kirk. He's like, no tricks. <laughs> the same thing you have him and Krug. And it's the same thing, the Klingons, the Transporter. There, there are little nuggets here uh, from, from the movies. that the, So this episode informs a lot of stuff like the, the honorable Klingon. Kang is probably the most honorable of all the Klingons we met so far. Uh, I mean, Kor was kind of devious, and Koloth was more of a, of a joke. <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, Kang is most in the mold of the future Klingons we see. So although this is, again, a kind of an under-the-radar episode with all these characters, uh, it establishes a lot of stuff about them. And I thought it was interesting. They, they blew up the Klingon ship, like, immediately. Like, can we, like... I know it's, like, damaged and stuff, and it's, like, leaking radiation, but can we, like, go over there and get, like, some secrets? Or, <laughs> you know, like, you, th- you think we'd salvage some stuff from that instead of immediately blowing it up. But it always, it always is nice to see the uh, the D7, which, uh, which they built for this season. And we got to see just a few times, some, sometimes not a Klingon ship, but still nice to see it all the same. So, 
Well, and, you know, you were talking about how, you know, Mara's the first Klingon woman we see and how interesting it is that suddenly we have a, you know, a woman and family and marriage and stuff, but it's not our Enterprise crew. But at the same time, you know, we know in TNG it's established that the Klingon women are just as strong, if not stronger, than the men. <laughs> so it makes sense that they would have a, you know, that he would have his wife with him. If she's a great scientist, he'd value her member, you know, her information and input on his crew. So, and I understand in the context of this episode why they would not go over to the D7 and and bring back stuff because if they're yeah, trying that kind of budget we got this is a bottle well show. that we too <laughs> uh budget wise at least for season three because we won't talk about that uh, unless we want to but um if they're trying to preserve and Kirk's wanting to preserve this three-year piece that they've had with the Klingons why why sabotage it by going over if you've already clearly have issues and no one knows why why magnify those and make it worse by saying oh we're gonna go over and we're gonna take some of your stuff from your ship and then we're gonna blow it up i think that that's a really good point uh but uh, but still i think blowing up the ship might also be (laughs) be a problem too but that's that's a really good point Haley. well it's it's a big plot point um they think that the radiation coming out of that ship is preventing them from communicating with starfleet and the second they blow it up she's like communication still aren't there and they're frustrated by it so it was it was more the fact that they wanted to get in touch with um starfleet command than anything else that was their priority and um they they thought that was the root cause and when it wasn't that just added more intrigue to the plot add, add that to the list of the abilities of the the pinwheel alien uh you know, and a couple of last things, the Klingons, and we'll, we'll move on. But, uh, you know, talking about strong Klingon women, I guess Laurel is the chancellor right now of the Klingon Empire. I don't know what's happened in the last 10 years. Thank you, Discovery. Uh, and also, uh, this is the episode that invents sight-to-sight beaming, you know, because Spock invents, he's like, here's what we do, right? This is a very risky procedure. We don't do it, you know? So, But, of course, they do it in Discovery all the time. So, thanks. Anyway, got to get my got to get my jabs in. Guys, guys, easy, easy. I will say one thing though. You, you I feel that the pinwheel alien is over my shoulder, turning red as I complain <laughs> about discovery here. Guys, well, so. I, I think that uh, what's interesting is is that in the next generation timeline, women cannot be chancellor, but they are chancellors in the TOS timeline and in the films. And in, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, the films. Yeah. So that yeah. So actually, you know, Star Trek regresses in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny. So the first female captain we see is Romulan. Uh, I believe Mara was also the first officer as well as the science officer. I thought he said that. So um, yeah. So you know, you get a female first officer, a female captain in the in TOS. It's just not human, <laughs> which is interesting. Although we did have number one for one episode. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. It's just 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 interesting. I think the the dynamics in play here. But uh, yeah, Mara plays. Um, I think a, a great character. I. You know, it's funny how many times they focus on her camera shoot, but she doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And so you're left to try to figure out what is she thinking? And she doesn't telegraph anything. So every time that, um, you know, a direction or a course uh, is is taken, um, you're kind of surprised by it. So you're sitting there going, oh, does she get it? Oh, nope, not yet. You know, <laughs> does she get it? Oh, now she does. You know, but I thought, again, it was it was kind of clever. She's in the background. She's watching. She's observing. She's thinking. And then, you know, the more vocal she is, is actually during the fight itself, where she's trying to get Kang to stop and even says at one point, fool, you know, I mean, how can you not see this? So I, I, I thought her growth was was great. Um, Kang, as you guys mentioned, uh, I thought, like you guys, best Klingon in the series through, through the first um, three seasons, just, just phenomenal. Uh, his voice, his mannerisms, uh, his action. I think that... Uh, you know, one of the things you guys had said earlier is that that Kirk was the, um, you know, the voice of reason. Well, he wasn't in the beginning. Um, in fact, you know, Kang hits him, and then he get when Kirk gets his shot, he takes it right back, you know, and punches him <laughs> too. Um, so I, I think everybody was kind of on a journey, and it, to me, it was like the the people that were in it earliest were were impacted the most. I will say Kirk's journey to getting to um, a reasonable level was the fastest of them all because everybody was taking, like Chekhov never recovers. Johnson never recovers. McCoy gets worse, right? You get, you get Scotty and uh, yeah. So anyway, I I thought that um, just circling back, Kang, great, uh, great commanding officer, um, definitely represents Klingon culture to the highest, understands that his wife is a casualty of war, which 
you know, you're looking yeah. at that going, man, yeah. this guy, you know, he's <laughs> he's in it to win it. And yeah, if he has to sacrifice his wife, okay. Um, could you imagine, uh, you know, any of us saying that, you know, <laughs> I'd be in a lot of trouble. Anyway, I, I think that, <laughs> I think that uh, um, they, they had some great lines uh, throughout. And, and you're right, this, this episode, this very kind of, you know, it's it's just not a a very talked about episode. It has a lot of things that impacted the rest of Star Trek holistically, and uh, these two characters, Kang and Mara, go a long way in establishing the uh, the canon of of many parts of Klingon culture. I agree, and I I like you know you were talking about how Mara was really quiet in the background. You never really knew. That's a like that's a scientist. They're, they're going to sit back and evaluate the evidence and not really say anything until they've actually made their own conclusions. So it's really interesting for me to, I, I could see that she was processing and trying to figure things out and just didn't want to speak up before she was ready to. And then she did when she needed to. You know, Ken, you, you mentioned uh, just when you were going on the list of characters that were affected the most, uh, Lieutenant Johnson, okay? And the, the, the Lieutenant John, did he look familiar to y'all? At all? Do you think you might have seen him before on the original series? Kind of like recurring red shirt. Oh, isn't he okay. Le- Ensign Leslie? Right. So the, he he is he is Lieutenant Galloway. He appears in quite a few episodes, uh, mostly in the first season, a couple in the second season. Uh, you might recall him most from the Omega Glory, where he dies, <laughs> where he gets phasered <laughs> by Captain Tracy, <laughs> and uh, then he comes back as a new character, Lieutenant Johnson, <laughs> for this episode, uh, and then he's also in Turnabout Intruder. So, continuity, right? Star Trek's always had trouble with it. But I just found it funny. They were like, yeah, this is this guy again. <laughs> sure. You know, I mean, hey, in a, in, a, in a universe where we have Mark Leonard playing a Romulan commander and Spock's dad, you know, anything's possible. But I just thought it was amusing. But this guy just, it was a pretty, you know, clear death. Like, he got vaporized, right? And the Omega Glory. And here he is, just a security officer. Uh, so, anyway. That's mutiny, mister. So, yeah, seriously, taking a sword to Captain Kirk, pretty extreme. But, uh, but yes, lots of stuff going on there. And to, 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 to talk about just the, the prejudice and the, and the dehumanizing of each other that, that promote uh, the anger in this episode. You know, you know Scotty, like the most, the most chill guy usually, unless somebody insults the Enterprise, uh, really goes after Spock. He goes on. You expect McCoy to be like the you know, racist one against Spock as he's like toes that line very often on, on the show. And and Scotty's the one that really it's like get your Vulcan hands off me, and you know it's uh, gets pretty intense. Like Spock and him, like Kirk has to break them up from potentially killing each other. You know, Chekhov's extreme hatred. It's interesting that this this alien uh, not only can it fake all these other things we're talking about, it can create false memories. Because Chekhov believes he has a brother that was killed by the Klingons. Side note: I like the I do like the continuity of Kirk not doing anything about his crew's personal life. He doesn't know Sulu has a daughter. He doesn't know that Chekhov doesn't have a brother. Spock has a secret brother nobody knows about. It's great stuff. Uh, but <laughs> uh, you know, did you not read the personnel profile? I mean, you know, 400 people. You can't keep track of everybody's family lives, right? Uh, but so, of course, you know, it, Sulu would know that he's an only child because they're sitting there, you know, at the helm and the navigator station. They're just talking all the time. I'm sure, I'm sure they're like best friends because all they do is sit there. Most of the time, just cruising through space with nothing to do, and they talk about stuff. So I like how Sulu's the guy that's like, "No, he doesn't have a brother. What are you guys talking about? You're crazy." But that's what really fuels Chekhov's rage towards the Klingons. And yeah, I, I guess if I had a memory uh, that my brother was killed by these people, I would have big, a bigger chip on my shoulder, much like Kirk does in the movies. Well, there we go, plant more seeds for the movies. His son was killed by the Klingons, so he has a big chip on his shoulder about that. So yeah, apparently Nicholas Meyer, when he was writing Star Trek Six, really just studied this episode. And was like, oh, this is how the crew feels about the Klingons, right? They didn't finish the episode and didn't realize that it was influenced by this entity because a lot of their, you know, strong races, like, let them die, all that stuff from Star Trek VI sounds like the characters in this episode mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, it is uh, interesting. That that scene with Scotty when he comes on and he's got the Claymore, which I really love, and I so wanted him to, like, put on his kilt to kind of go with that. When he comes on and, you know, he tells, he calls Spock a green-blooded half-breed, and it just kind of hits you that, you like, really, Scotty? Like, you are not yourself. You wouldn't, you would never say that. And, 
and Kirk coming back and telling Spock, you know, you're you're human, you're half human, and and come back and bounce out of it, and you can understand that Spock would come out of that anger. But that scene is just really incredible because, like you said, Zach, you would think that Bones would be the one doing it, but I guess considering that Bones is usually the one really kind of pushing that most of the time having another character be the one to do it really shows that, hey, something is wrong and something's going on because Scotty wouldn't act like that. He wouldn't He wouldn't be that way to Spock. And Chekhov, you know, is interesting. I think even in the beginning, he, like, mentions the Cossacks. I don't know if you guys caught that. And I'm like, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> you cut there. What are you talking about, bro? Mike. The Cossacks, like, you're so, like, so far removed. Like, we're even far removed from the Cossacks. I'm just like, okay, the Cossacks, okay. Just really, I like that Kirk, it shows Kirk processing everything and going, okay, everyone's not acting themselves. Bones charges on the bridge and is spouting stuff. We've got to kill these guys. I've got all these men down in sick bay and they're dying and, and whatnot. And it's really interesting and even Uhura like overreacts at one point and and that's not in her character either and so it's it's quite interesting this everybody's just receding backwards and you know the Klingons it doesn't show so much as them going back like a whole lot just because they do have that fighting nature but it, it's interesting to see how far our enterprise crew falls in this you know we, we usually take the moral high road we're we're evolved enough that we don't we don't immediately jump to i'm gonna kill you we we try to be more diplomatic but everybody's jumping to i'm just gonna kill these guys we need to kill them and it's really interesting to see that sudden just drop back to animalistic behavior that really isn't seen a whole lot of and the pitting against each other, even. Yeah, well, I, I that's right, um, and that that's it's a very common thing in war. That um, you know, first of all, I think the thing that was interesting to me was the fact that you know the propaganda from the Klingons that the Federation does terrible things to their to their prisoners, and the Klingons do the same things to you know uh, experiments and all the things and. You know that that was you take World War II. Um, that was what the Japanese were fed. Um, that's why they died to the end. And part of it was their own honor, um, but a lot of it was they you know that they were going to be killed anyway, and they were going to be looked at as um, cowards and all that other stuff. Which is exactly how they looked at U.S. POWs and treated them horribly and killed them and you know you know unspeakable acts against the Chinese. So a lot of the things that they were talking about, I think, kind of stemmed from. And the fact that they were just you know twenty years removed uh, from from World War II and a lot of people that that's how it was. There was a lot of propaganda from the Russians against the U.S. and vice versa on how people act. And so, and in the middle of a fight, um, your brain almost goes there uh, because you know you're looking at people that want to kill you, and you don't really look at your enemy as being as human as you. Uh, you know they're they're out to do bad things, and so the mind. Um, plays a big role in being able to convince yourself, your own conscience, that what you're doing um, is right uh, in the face of doing things that are egregious. And, uh, and that's, that's been, you know, it happens all the time today. It's, it's replete in history, the, uh, the mindsets, you know, how, how different races look at upon each other and, you know, we're, we're superior because of whatever, you know, skin color, beliefs, you, you name it. And that I think is played perfectly in this episode. They they tick every box you can think of, and I thought they did it phenomenally well. And it made us uncomfortable, made me very uncomfortable to watch it because you see it today all the time, and um, I still hear it all the time. And it's one of those things you just go, "Wow, yeah, um, it's there." And they had the guts to kind of put it up there in front of you in full view and say, "This is this is how it works," and. Um, you know, the the rage that McCoy had, very common. He's the one seeing the blood that got the um the real impacts of the war and he wants to go after the people that are creating this more than anyone else. So on one sense you're going, Yeah, that's that's not Bones's character. But when thwarted, you know, people can deal with things that are a natural disaster and there's there's um carnage and things, you know, th- th- when when there's no 
people at fault, you deal with it differently. But when somebody's creating it, all you want to do is 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 make them stop. You want to go after them, and you see by their own behaviors that uh, that they need to be. So I thought um, the whole prejudice dehumanizing piece of this um, to promote um, this anger and hostility was was not only by the numbers, but proven throughout human history and even current events. And um, the Scotty and Spock scene was as uncomfortable as any of the others. And that's what I think this show was very good. It took you out of your Star Trek comfort zone. It made you see that anybody can be manipulated. And um, it wasn't Scotty's tirade at the end when he was just, you know, you're a half-breed, you're this, you're going, ooh, ooh, ooh. But when he looks at him and just says, you freak, you just go, damn, you know, this is this is unreal. And uh, and even Spock, whether he's just like, yeah, even, even I find serving with humans to be, you know, whatever he said, uncomfortable or uh, disappointing. I forget the term, but he, he just, you know, he, he even admits that, you know, dealing with you is, 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 is a real pain in the ass. So um, anyway, great, um, great writing. I thought um, great acting. Uh, they sold it well. And uh, yeah, no one likes I, I think when a show can take you out of your comfort zone with your own characters, um, it tells you one thing that we're all susceptible to it. And we all have to be on watch for it. I thought that was probably the most uh, the most um, key point of this 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 show. Which, when we decided to do it, I wasn't thinking along those terms because I hadn't watched it in a while. But watching it again, I was like, "Dang, you know, this is this is a pretty important episode." It's fascinating that we take and we'll take people that we don't know. And in this in this regard, you know, the Klingons they've had interactions with the Federation before, but they don't really know the Federation and the Federation doesn't really know the Klingons and we automatically assume the worst. We we go, oh, this is how they treat people. So if we were f- to fall into their hands, this is how we it would, you know, how it would happen. This is what they would do to us. And it's immediately absolutely the worst. They're going to kill us. They're going to torture us. They're going to, you know, whatever. And then the Federation thinks the same thing. And it's, it's really from a standpoint that I look at as being an observer of people and whatnot, that we just automatically want to jump to the absolute worst conclusions that we're going to be treated the worst when we really have nothing to base it on. If we've never interacted with them, we've never seen anything of them, that we automatically assume that. And it's really, really interesting. So rather than wait for something to happen from them, you immediately start and seek an action against them and, and, and try to do something to prevent whatever it is, even though it hasn't happened and it may not. And so this episode is really interesting. You mentioned that propaganda like, oh, the Federation does this. And, and Kirk's going, no, we don't. And, and how do you know that? You have not really any basis of that. We've had some interactions in the past, but not a lot to base any of that on. And yet they go that route anyway. And then same with the Federation, thinking the same thing. And so it's really quite fascinating from a humanistic standpoint to study at. Yeah, even that first scene where they beam all the Klingons on board, Mara says they're going to torture us for our military and scientific knowledge. I thought that was interesting. They say mm-hmm. scientific knowledge because the Federation probably thinks they're way more advanced than the Klingons about a lot of stuff like that. Uh, but then when Kirk tells them, we're not going to put you in the brig, we're going to put you in the crew lounge, you'll see that you know, you'll be treated respectively. And Kang's like, okay. Of that I have seen. So you can start to see, like, oh, maybe these guys aren't so bad after all. Of course, it goes off the rails when the pinwheel shows up and starts turning red. But you can you can see that at the at the very beginning when they show up, too, that they plant the seeds of those misunderstandings. So I think that um, we kind of hit on the learning and thought processes, right, when we talked about the rules of war. And <laughs> the... Well, hey, hey w- w- the rules of war, when a man is down, you don't just keep hacking away. That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> that's quite yeah. McCoy. So that, that's right. And again, that, that was all fueling the hate. Um, it, you know, and if you think about it, if this episode was made today, uh, with with the ability to, um, you know, with CGI and so forth, and the in the effects, imagine just how bloody it would have been. I mean, this this, you know, when you're fighting with swords or whatever, it's a, it's a whole different. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like Mel Gibson's going to be charging down with a kilt at any moment. But uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it could have been pretty pretty brutal. But I I think that um, the whole game, which I kind of I think captured when I was talking about the uh, the dehumanizing, is that um, you know we have to be aware all the time that um, 
there, there's folks and forces, whether it's TV shows, marketing, news shows or whatever, people are always trying to sell a bias. They're always trying to sell a thought uh, process. And then wherever our, our biases lie is where we go, right? How often do you turn to a new station that you don't normally like um, to get a different point of view? We're always comfortable in our own learnings. And uh, what I what I thought was really interesting about this this whole episode was the power of manipulation, um, how quickly we can fall off, you know, our, our, away from our character, and then somehow, some way, bring it back. So I think you know it's it's a good story, you know, of uh, anger and revenge to redemption and honor, and uh, it follows that path, I think, brilliantly. And um, like I said, that's why I think this episode. Seeing it now and seeing it through the perspective that I see, uh, you know, having been a while from seeing it, um, just just points a lot of light at a lot of things. Yeah, there's there's definitely the silly aspects to the episode just because it's Star Trek. But this episode really is kind of more of a higher thought process and powerful episode when you really take a look at it and, and sit down and watch it. And it's interesting that you know, we we can be manipulated so easily, and yet we can easily step back from that too, but you have to make that choice. And, and so this episode really shows that our characters, especially Kirk, he makes that choice to say, I'm not going, I'm going to fight this, whatever it is, and I'm going to figure out what's going on because I know this is not us. This is not the Klingons. This is not the Federation. And it's a choice and it's a conscious choice to say, I'm not going to be manipulated. I'm going to look for evidence that, that either disproves or proves what's going on and why people are acting the way they are. And I'm going to make a conscious choice to fix this rather than continue to be manipulated in the situation and and continue down the spiral of just constant fighting. And it's really quite interesting because even in our own lives, we have to make that choice. Why destroy each other, right, when we have a common enemy? Like, Kirk has to keep convincing him. Like, no, we're not... We're not your enemy here and, and you're not my enemy here. We have, we, there's a third party at play here. And so if you just, you know, obviously that's not the case for every conflict, but it can solve a lot of misunderstanding, miscommunication. If you just put that prejudice aside, uh, because they have the history with the Klingons. That's why, the, that's why this works well. And as we've all said it before, this was some alien of the week, right? It wouldn't work quite as well, but we know we have an understanding of what the Klingons are. We understand why the crew feels the way they do. And having to overcome that is the struggle of the episode. I think um, I, I I don't even know what to add. <laughs> Guys, you know, I, I I love the discussion here. I, I love hearing both your points of views, and you know, you've made you've made me think quite a bit even more. You know, like I said, just just coming off this, um, you know, which which I thought was kind of like a quirky different episode or whatnot became um, as heavy as some of the um, some of the points of the of the show. So, no, I, I I thank you both, and uh, I thought that. Um, you know, if, if people haven't seen it in a while, I think it's I think it'd be good to catch up on. I think it would be good for a lot of the folks that watch a lot of the other Star Trek um, that aren't as tied to um, TOS as the uh, I, I won't say should be because there's there's no rules involved in this game of fandom. But I think this is kind of um, one of those um, foundational episodes uh, that that help you understand mm-hmm. um, where the whole Klingon Federation culture differences are how people think and then how some of the things have have grown from this episode uh into the rest of star trek so yeah and you know zach it's it's funny when you talk about star trek 6 i didn't make that connection i um i have a funny feeling that that nicholas meyer did not watch this (laughs) as as holistic um well also you know star Star trek 2 yeah right nicholas meyer has him say the klingons don't take prisoners which which they do in the original series, yeah, and they do in the other movies. They sure you know, do. So. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, but they, you know, Day of the Dove, though, right? I would say if you had to recommend one Cleon episode to anyone from the original series, this would be the one I would recommend. What about y'all? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think so. Yeah, I mean, Trouble Tribbles is fun, but you don't get the you know the Klingons. Are, you know, they they they're the goofy enemy. Um, and, and and Aaron of Mercy is a great episode, but Kirk is like undercover the whole episode, so you don't really. And then Core doesn't know who he is, and so you don't really see like a a Klingon commander versus a 
Starfleet captain the whole episode like we do in this one. Yeah, so. you, you get the brutality of their culture in that, but you don't get the whole the whole pieces of it. True, uh, right. you know, th- like I think like Haley pointed out, you know, here's here's a female science officer and first officer. Um, okay, there, you know, you you wouldn't think that from a society like the Klingons. You, I, I would have obviously, I once maybe it's not obvious, but I would have assumed that male dominant, you know, testosterone fuel culture, killing, brutal, whatever. And um and women were, were more subjective. Um, but that's not the case. So it's it's a complex and in mature culture in many ways. And uh, you know, it's been changed and redefined and played with quite a bit over the years, but I thought that was kind of a, a neat aspect. You you can't always assume um, you know, how people are writing these things. So I, I like that piece of it too. Exactly. And I think this episode shows us why God needs a starship. <laughs> yes, we're leaving the galaxy. Yes, again. Again, again. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, were the dilithium crystals going to um, churn out just before the Great Barrier or what? What do you think? Yeah. I don't, they'd have to go find a nuclear uh, battleship to go siphon uh, nuclear power from to restore the crystals. So all kinds of... Shades. Basically, the entire original series movie run is based off this episode. That's what we discovered today. So there it is. Uh, but l- l- last th- last thing I'll say: if you are like us, if you're hashtag Team Kang, he appears in the Deep Space Nine episode Blood Oath, and also mm-hmm. in the Voyager episode Flashback, which also features Sulu and Janice Wren and the crew of the Excelsior during the events of Star Trek VI. So there you have it, guys. Go seek out more Kang. He's out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looks a little different, but <laughs> um, it's still Kang. If you don't recognize the way Kang looks in future Star Trek, you will recognize his voice from when yes. Glansar has amazing voice. But Day of the Dove isn't the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. I knew from the beginning it was going to be a very large and complicated undertaking. I was asked by the editor and the licensor to come up with a storyline for Picard that would deal with the fallout of what I unleashed in my novel Section 31 Control, in which Section 31's crimes, and in fact its very existence, are publicly exposed to the Federation at large as well as its interstellar neighbors. Earl Grey. Troy looks down at her empty stomach. Let me do this part. I'm going to act it. Okay. Troy looks down at her empty stomach and frowns telepathically. <laughs> oh, I wish. Listeners, you couldn't see it, but I did that. <laughs> oh, okay. LaForge. <laughs> Computer, locate a big thing of chips. <laughs> to the journey! What about the basics, planet? That planet's not bad. There's a lot of wide open spaces. You just have to avoid going in the caves. Yeah. I mean, anthropologically speaking. No spelunking on that planet. You can spelunk on the. <laughs> Or Unicomplex, but you can't spelunk on that planet. No. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. That he said... He was taking the new body out for a ride? Yeah, that was great. (laughs) I mean, it was a great line. It just doesn't really fit what really happened. Like, he wasn't out there dating other people, you know? Well, he was trying to figure out who this new Culber was, you know? No, I know, but... it was like funny. The it was lighthearted. It, right. It just didn't. It just doesn't fit what he actually did. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm.com and click discussion on the menu bar. 
Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, Dan Rhodes, and Mike Richards. Your contributions and support mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. So to find me on the interwebs, you can find me on Twitter at BostonSCPO. You can find me on Twitter at Trekkie01D. You can also hear me talking about both Discovery and the Orville over on the Fandom Podcast Network's Discoville podcast that drops every week. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at Always Smallville with one S. I'm also the co-host of Franchise Fatigue, a podcast where we look at sequels, remakes, movie franchises, and when a franchise gets fatigued. You can find us on Twitter at UFP Earth, part of the United Federation of Podcasts. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit.